and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we have two interviews. First, we're listening to a conversation that you and I had with friend of LARB and contributing editor at LARB, John Wiener, about the late and great Mike Davis, who passed last week at age 76. They knew each other for many decades and worked together on a book. And then we'll have an interview that I did with the writer Constance Debray about her novel, Love Me Tender. I'm really glad that we got a chance to talk to John because, you know, obviously, as you said, he was so close to Mike and they wrote a book together. But also it felt kind of important to mark the passing of Mike Davis, just as somebody who not only had been involved with LARB for a number of years, but also whose writing and thought has transformed the way that a lot of people, including myself, think about how we inhabit L.A. and what L.A.'s history means and what L.A.'s future could be. We talked a lot with John about probably one of his more well-known books, which is City of Quartz, and that was a book that was recommended to me literally by almost everyone when I first moved to Los Angeles. So again, it was just a momentous passing and, you know, a great opportunity to reflect with John on a life in activism and in literature. Yeah, and I I remember City of Courts really transforming the way, not only the way I look at Los Angeles, but, you know, the world at large and structures of power at play in the world at large and um, teaching me to be a little bit more cynical, I think, than I had been before I read it. I was very sad to learn of Mike's passing, but I think his work is such a gift, and I'm also glad that we could talk about him and, you know, honor him to some degree. And speaking of someone who talks a lot about power, how's that for a transition? Constance Debray's novel is really about power in regards to who gets power in, you know, parent relationships, how you can give up power in society, what could be more powerful than having like institutional or aristocratic power is perhaps having freedom. This is a book about a woman who gives up a very well set up life to do what she wants. And that's, you know, write and swim and have sex with other women. It's really amazing because it's so fearless And um, in speaking about Mike Davis, someone who's fearless, I, I think that it will actually be a nice compliment. All right, that sounds great. Let's get to those interviews. Okay, great. We're honored to be speaking with longtime LARB contributing editor, John Wiener. John is also a contributing editor to The Nation magazine, and he hosts their podcast, Start Making Sense. A professor of history emeritus at UC Irvine, he's the author of many books, including Give Me Some Truth, The John Lennon FBI Files, How We Forgot the Cold War, A Historical Journey Across America, and most recently, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, which he co-authored with his friend Mike Davis. John knew Mike Davis for decades, and he joins us today to remember him after his passing last week at age 76. Thank you so much, John, for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So, John, let's just start. As Kate said, you've known Mike for many, many years. Can you 
tell us how you guys first met and kind of what your earliest impressions were of him? Well, actually, I didn't figure this out until I was doing the research for Set the Night on Fire. I knew that Mike had been the organizer for SDS in Southern California in the 60s. I didn't get to Los Angeles until August 1969. And my ambition at that point was to be a radical journalist. I'd worked on an underground paper in Cambridge, Mass. There was a syndicate of the underground press called Liberation News Service, and I became the Los Angeles stringer for Liberation News Service. And one of the first things that happened after I got to L.A. was that there was a string of terrorist bombings by right-wing anti-Castro Cubans. And one of Mm. the targets was a left-wing organizing center, bookshop, and coffeehouse down by MacArthur Park called the Haymarket. And I wrote an article about the wave of right-wing Cuban terrorism in Los Angeles, and I interviewed the guy who ran the Haymarket Movement Center, Mike Davis. I actually found this in my own, you know, the box in the garage. I'd totally forgotten about this. And I quote him as, you know, he was appropriately defiant. They had planned to show a movie about Fidel. And they said, you know, we're going to show it anyway in the ashes of our building. And, uh, you know, they're not going to stop us. So my impression at that point, Mike was already quite a famous person. He was you know, a full-time organizer. And I thought he was, you know, he's very eloquent, but he was very fierce. He was a little intimidating, I have to say. I That was my first contact with Mike Davis in the end of 1969. Then we didn't really become friends or anything until much later. First, he was a student at UCLA. I knew him a little bit then. So that was the beginning. And then, of course, then came City of Quartz. And like everybody else, I was blown away by City of Quartz. And I was fortunate enough to be able to teach City of Quartz every year in my uh, classes in the history department at UC Irvine. So, yeah, City of Quartz is clearly Mike's classic book, the most referenced. I saw every obit mentioned it. What was so different about the way that he wrote about L.A. in City of Quartz Why did the book blow you away? What was your impression of it when you read it? Well, partly it was the intensity of his writing style, which was part of his political vision, that he was just an incredibly fierce, uncompromising enemy of oppression and exploitation. And um, But he did it in such a compelling and, and original way You know, he was an amazing writer just from the very first pages, which are about the preface. It's about Mike visiting the ruins of a socialist community north of Los Angeles that had been destroyed in the 19 aughts, Llano del Rio. Right off the bat, you're in some place you've never heard of with somebody who's incredibly adventurous, and he weaves this together with immigration and past and present, and then you turn the page, and the first chapter is Sunshine and Noir, the competing images of of Los Angeles in literature, real estate promotion, movies, and popular culture. And, you know, you can't put it down. It's incredible. I don't really have anything very original to say about what made 
city of quartz so great. He had predecessors, you know, he's very influenced by Kerry McWilliams, who had a lot of the same political ideas, but Mike just somehow he became a writer of incredible power and vision and depth. That book gets so much play. I wonder what you make of his other work and if there are other volumes of his that you would recommend to listeners or, you know, other ways that he impacted the conversation and discourse of the United States beyond City of Courts. You know, it was really his next book that was the number one bestseller, Ecology of Fear. And that was the one that got him a MacArthur Genius Award and a Getty Fellowship and got him attacked by the local powers that be and Southern California journalism. And that was on the bestseller list for, I don't know, 16 weeks or 18 weeks. And that's much more about the relationship of Los Angeles environment, climate, geological history, wildlife, to its current political situation. So that was much, much bigger book in terms of the book biz and got him in much more trouble. That was when he was attacked for his footnotes by the realtors who were unhappy with his chapter, the case for letting Malibu burn. In many ways, his most visionary and original book is one that's not so well known, Late Victorian Holocausts. This is one where he combines the history of global climate change with the history of famine and colonial power in three parts of the world, India, China, and Latin America. It's an amazing tour de force, and it really is a pioneering work of a new kind of history. You might call it interdisciplinary history if you were being kind of boring and academic about it, but there'd really never been a book. People had always talked about, we need a history of global climate. We need a comparative history of different colonial systems. He was the one who showed how to do it. And in many ways, that's kind of his most original book. And then, of course, there were the ones where he famously predicted that viral pandemics coming out of Central Asia would be a threat to all of humanity. That book was called The Monster at Our Door. It came out in 2001 or something. And everybody thought, well, Mike is kind of overdoing it here. Mike has become a little too obsessed with apocalypse. But then, of course, we found out he was right about that, too. As you're describing his work, and certainly anybody that has read City of Courts or any of his other books would understand this about Mike, is that, you know, you use this word interdisciplinary, but Mike really manages to bring together studies of archaeology, of urban environments. You know, he's described himself as a Marxist environmentalist. You know, he's looking at pandemic flows. Can you talk a little bit just about how original pulling those things together was and kind of what it was like for you, especially later as as a collaborator of his, to kind of be with a mind that connects the dots in that way? One of the things people don't quite appreciate about Mike, they love his writing style, his political vision, his intensity of his worldview. He was an archival maniac. In doing the research for City of Quartz, he read every page of the LA Times for decades. And the LA Times in the 50s and 60s had these suburban regional sections. There was an Orange County edition, there was a Valley edition, there was a Ventura County edition. He read all of those. 
just to write one chapter, the chapter on homeowners groups. He later in the 10 year anniversary new introduction, he's kind of embarrassed by how uh, he failed to cut most of that chapter, which he felt he, he should do. But he was an archival maniac. He loved finding old stuff. He knew his reading was voracious and ubiquitous. He'd read just a huge amount of stuff. And his reading included science. I remember interviewing him on the Nation podcast about the COVID pandemic. And he said, uh, just in conversation beforehand, he said, I've been staying up late reading virology textbooks. He also knew who all the leading virologists of the United States and the English-speaking world were. He interviewed all of them. He read their scientific research. He was also an amateur, I guess you'd call it geologist. He collected igneous rocks from all around the world. He had a huge rock collection, specimens, I think he called them, at his house. So he had a very strong interest in science and in keeping up to date on science, as well as this knowledge of history and politics all around the world. So it's that kind of polymath absorption in the primary sources and in the research reports that helped make his writing so deep. He wasn't just a pundit. He actually knew what he was talking about. I'm curious what your process was like working with him on Set the Night on Fire and, you know, both of you writing about this time where you had been really active in the history that you were writing about. The idea of a movement history of Los Angeles in the 60s was something Mike had been talking about for a very long time. When I looked up the history of this, I found I'd interviewed him in 2003 for the Radical History Review when he had just published the collection of his essays had just come out. And he opened the interview by saying, my day job currently is a grassroots history of Los Angeles in the 60s. That was 2003. And he said it would be called Setting the Night on Fire. That sounded like a great idea to me. I really wanted to read Mike Davis's book about L.A. in the 60s. And then in 2007, an obscure Canadian bilingual labor history journal called Labor Le Travail published a new piece of Mike's called uh, Riot Nights on Sunset Strip. And it was clearly part of his forthcoming work on L.A. in the 60s. It was about the Sunset Strip riots of the mid-60s, later turned into a not very good B-movie. So every time I interviewed him after that, I would say, how's this? How's the book on L.A. in the 60s coming? And he would say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm hard at work on it. But nothing else ever appeared beyond this thing in Labor Le Travail in Canada, except in a collection of essays that he published that year. And then in... Um, I looked up the date, January 1st, 2014. He sent me an email and he said, I've got too many projects. I'm not going to be able to finish all of them. Would you collaborate with me on the LA in the 60s book since you keep bugging me about it? And I said, of course, you know, I'd love to do this. So he already had like a 12-page outline and chronology and a big list of people he wanted to interview. He wanted it to be a kind of a 60% oral history, he told me. That didn't really work out. We were a little bit too late to interview a lot of the people that were on his list. So he had a clear vision of what this was going to be. But And we had a very simple division of labor. The spine of the book is Mike's narrative of Black civil rights and then black power 
organizing protest hinging around, of course, the Watts riots of August 1965. And then all the movements kind of swirling around that, reacting to that, or having nothing to do with that. The other ones, that was going to be my job. So that's the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the counterculture institutions, the LA Free Press, KPFK, draft resistance. And some of these things he was in the center of, but decided I should write about them, like draft resistance. Others, he was surprised by what I found. Turned out a lot of the women's movement chapter of Los Angeles, he said, was news to him. Others, he was right in the center of the largest mass arrests on a campus protest anywhere in the United States where Valley State in Northridge, what's now called Cal State Northridge, and Mike was arrested as part of those protests. It was an SDS uh, event. But even there, he let me write the chapter and do the interview. So he sent me his chapters. I sent him my chapters. I sort of wanted him to rewrite my chapters so that it would seem more like a Mike Davis book from beginning to end. But he didn't do very much of that. He rewrote the beginnings of a couple of them to make them sort of flow together much more. I, Of course, the only editing I did on his chapters was kind of like, you need to introduce this character or this event we're dealing with in another chapter, you can cut this section. That kind of editing as opposed to writing. And of course, it ended up being three or four times as long as it was contracted to be. But fortunately, our verso, you know, wasn't about to say, you guys can't do this. Then right in the middle of this, in January 1st, 2014, he was healthy and, and happy. And then about two years after that, he got diagnosed with two kinds of cancer. And then there was like two years of cancer radiation and surgery. And then he recovered and he was in remission. And then he returned and finished his chapters. And we got the book out just as the pandemic began, April 2020. So kind of returning to that time in the 60s, you know, you and Mike were both heavily involved in the student and other political movements. You mentioned SDS, which some of our listeners may not know, Students for a Democratic Society. So as you said, Mike was involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. I wonder how he felt about the kind of legacies of those movements as we move into the new millennium and with the rise, especially in the last couple of years, for example, of Black Lives Matter. We have a more active, I think, prison abolition movement. And also a thing that I'm always curious to know how Mike felt about is the kind of re-emergence of unionization efforts, which I know was something that was very dear to Mike's heart and very close to his own personal history. So can you talk about how he saw the connections between that kind of formative experience that you both had in the 60s and 70s as it kind of emerged in different ways later, more closer to the present? Well, a lot of the the core of our book, Mike's chapters on Black organizing and Black protest, is a tragic story of the destruction of this movement in part by the FBI and the LAPD, and in part by internecine conflict, which, you know, actually erupted in the murder of two members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, by members of Ron Karenga's Black Nationalist Group on the UCLA campus. So when Black Lives Matter came along, Mike and I were very excited that it was so much better than the Black movements of the 60s. And first of all, you know, a hundred times bigger, millions of people occupying the streets for months. 
and very cooperative, very collective, very unified. So the contrast, the success of Black Lives Matter compared to the defeats and destruction of the, especially the Black Power movement of the late 60s were, you know, unmistakable and interesting to think about. Well, why? Why was it so different this time around? And of course, our book came out just before the summer of Black Lives Matter. So it gave us a lot to talk about and think about and yak about on people's podcasts. The labor movement, if you read that 10th year new edition of City of Quartz, he does say the one thing he totally missed was the emergence of the Latino labor movement in L.A. as the central force transforming Los Angeles politics. Of course, he was part of it. He was arrested in the the Century City Justice for Janitors demonstrations. He's written about that. On the other hand, City of Quartz was not famously, I must have read a dozen student papers saying, Mike Davis's big mistake in City of Quartz is where's the working class? It was not a book about organized labor in L.A. It could have been. It could have been about the CIO organizing, you know, the L.A. rubber plants and auto plants and aircraft industry in the 40s and but it wasn't. It was about the power structure of Los Angeles. And uh, so in a way, even though he wrote in the 2000 new edition that he had missed something, it was just wasn't one of the topics he was covering. What's the future of the labor movement in Los Angeles? But he had a very keen sense that here was a truly historical event, development, that he had missed. And indeed, L.A. politics and then all of California politics has been transformed by the political mobilization of the Latino labor movement in Southern California. That's the reason why today every statewide office in California is occupied by a Democrat. I was really struck over these last few months as Mike was deteriorating and decided to go off cancer treatment and into palliative care that he invited so many journalists into his home and that he kind of projected this aura of peace in a lot of those pieces that were written and that he seemed to be so open about his process of dying. I thought that was really remarkable. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, people had this image of Mike as this very fierce, uncompromising, far left-wing guy. And they learned, actually, he's a very sweet, warm person who's really interested in, you know, all kinds of things. In fact, his door had always been open to students and journalists from lesser publications, let us say. He didn't really want to talk to the New Yorker or the New York Times, but local, he lived in San Diego, so he met people who were left-wing writers in San Diego and encouraged them and Students could come over to his house and talk to him. And so he always did that, it turns out. But then when he was dying, then the New Yorker really wanted to go talk to him. And the LA Times really wanted to go talk to him. And, and of course, one of the big stories of Mike's life is the New York Times had been such a committed antagonist, an enemy of his for a decade or two. But now a new generation has risen at the LA Times and these are young people who grew up reading City of Quartz. It inspired them to be journalists. They all want to be like Mike Davis. So the media has also been transformed by a new generation of, of younger people who don't have some of the political commitments of their predecessors. And I think that 
also made Mike happy. You know, he'd rather get along with the LA Times than not. So, yeah, he did some of the best interviews he's ever done were the ones he did in the last couple of months of his life. And then to kind of wrap up here, you know, what will you miss most about Mike? What legacy do you think he offers to activists, to social movement historians, and, you know, many others, especially progressives on the left in the wake of his passing? You know, Mike told me that towards the end, he would, you know, he did these interviews and he said, I I did an interview today where a journalist in Argentina asked me, what was my legacy for Latin America? He said, do I have a legacy for Latin America? I'm not sure. Is that my job to figure that out? I think maybe it's his job. So I guess maybe it is our job to figure this out. You know, it's hard to, the things that Mike stood for, there are millions of people who stand for those things. You know, he's against exploitation, he's against oppression, he's for the voices, for the unheard, he's against uh, abuses of power and for equality. You know, it doesn't do much good to recite the wonderful things that Mike was in favor of, because, you know, everybody we know is in favor of those things, except for a few relatives and Thanksgiving dinner, I must add. Uh, But, um, you know, what's irreplaceable about Mike is the passion that went into his writing, that combination we've talked about here, the passion and yet mastery of what he's talking about. You know, it's easy to be a pundit and have opinions and say what the left should do next, but it's hard to do it with the eloquence and the depth of knowledge that Mike had. And uh, it's hard to see anybody who's going to be able to equal that. So that's what I'm going to miss. Us too. Thank you so much, John, for uh, speaking with us today. My pleasure. That was John Wiener speaking about the late and great Mike Davis. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with John Wiener about the life and work of Mike Davis. We now turn to our conversation with Constance Debray, author of Love Me Tender. I'm happy to be speaking with the writer Constance Debray today. Constance Debray is the author of five novels, including Playboy, which is awarded the Prix de la Coupole in France in 2018, and Nome, which was released also in France earlier this year. For many years, Debray worked as a criminal defense lawyer, as well as serving at the French National Assembly, before quitting in 2015 to work full-time as a writer. She joins me to speak about her novel, Love Me Tender, which was published this fall in the U.S. It's the first of her books to be translated in English. It follows a woman who, like Debray, was once a lawyer, but has quit her job and vacated the comforts of her former life to devote herself to writing. She is a son from her marriage named Paul. After telling her husband, who she's separated from, that she's decided to be with women, the narrator's ex starts to turn Paul against her and prevents her from seeing him. The novel takes place over the span of a glacial court case that will decide the narrator's fate with her son, all the while asking critical questions about the fearsome nature of unconditional love and attachment, the roles of gender and motherhood, and the unassailability of the truth. Thank you so much, Constance, for being here. Thank you. So I thought we could start talking about what kind of transformation the narrator is going through as the novel opens. She's figured out she wants to be with women a while before, but um, she's in the process of shedding all the trappings of her bourgeois life, her job, her marriage, her possessions. 
How did this process come about for her in your mind? I had in mind the uh, the book of uh, Saint Augustine, you know, Les Confessions in French. I don't know how it is translated in English, but actually it's the story of a conversion and whether it is homosexuality in the case of the book, in my book, or for Saint Augustine faith, it doesn't matter to me, which is much more interesting, I think, when something whatever occurs that gives one the feeling of a coincidence with the world is what you do of that, uh, out of it. So in the case of the book, she comes out as a lesbian and she's a uh, 40-something, but which matters to her is what it means and what she can do out of it. It's really like in the book of St. Augustine, where you have the life before and the life after. And so actually the main thing is homosexuality leads her to write. And that's the main thing and nothing else matter. And she suddenly understands that she discovers a great power in her instinct. And of course, the first thing that where that instinct had led her is women, but she suddenly wants to follow her instinct. And she realized that many things in her life before were conventional and that she doesn't give a damn about those conventions. And what she wants to do is just to write. And so she does it. And of course, there is a price, but she doesn't give a damn. I was wondering, since... There's a correspondence to events that took place in your life that you decided to leave your job and become a writer. What that decision was like for you at the time, how you made it, if you were afraid to make that decision, what were the consequences for you? Yes, of course. The material of the book, completely uh, the true events of my life. But it's not. it was not a decision. It's just that suddenly, really in the same week, I had sex with a woman and suddenly had had this feeling that I could write, I could finally write, which was something very uh, profound in me. But I, before that, I was unable to do it. And suddenly I had the feeling that I could do it. And then I just did it, you know, because uh, I have, and we uh, probably like everyone, the feeling that we are, we are going to die. So we have to do things now. And so I just did it and then stopped doing my job. So that's it. And when that happened, did all hell break loose in your life? Did people accept that choice or did people tell you you were crazy? Yes, of course. They were telling me I was crazy, of course. But it's very interesting too to see that uh, in a society where everyone worships freedom and, and books and literature, when you do it, it is seen as madness. And it has been seen as madness, even by the judges. And so that's fascinating and very interesting. But I, I knew it wasn't because I have deep faith in literature. And I was convinced that I was doing the right thing. So uh, I didn't step down or, you know, I didn't, I refused to bow really under this uh, but it was very interesting, too, because 
because of this context, it became, and because I had no plan B, it became almost a question of this book, the book I was writing at the moment, which was Playboy, actually, the first one, became basically a question of uh, life and death. And when you worship literature and when the book you're writing is getting this importance, this is really exciting too. In the novel, basically, it seems like when the narrator tells her ex that she's going to be with women, that's when, even though they've been separated for years, that's when he starts to withhold Paul from her. And you can tell how painful it is for the narrator, but it it also leads her to ask questions about the nature of unconditional love. And they're really important questions that are hard to answer, obviously just off the top of your head. But I did wonder if you had ideas. You know, the first page of the book is really sets up some of the themes and these questions about you know, why we need to believe that the love between a mother and child is unconditional. And you ask, what are the economic and political motives behind that? And I wonder if you've had ideas about that and why it would be so frightening if we didn't believe that family love was an obligation and was a choice, if society could cohere around that belief or if that is too frightening an idea. But I thank you. I mean, all the answers are in your question. But uh, first, I, I want to say that writing to me is about freedom and about questioning the thing that we are not allowed to say out loud in the, in the normal life. And I think that's the reason a book exists. It is to, maybe not to give answers, I'm not uh, writing uh, essays, but to ask questions. And that's what I did. And, but also I think that it is also because I do believe in love that I allow myself to ask questions. I think when you have no doubt about something, you can ask questions. And that's part of the answer. The fact that we cannot ask questions about love and the fact that there is this expression, unconditional love, shows that there is a fear that maybe people are not so sure about this love between uh, love in general and then love uh, in families, of course. Plus, what is love? I mean, we know, I mean, okay, probably everyone loves, every parents, every mother loves her children. But we know as well that there is lots of violence and hate as well. So uh, unconditional love, yes, but what does it mean in reality? Also, I think this thing, this uh, love between a mother and a child is a relationship. And in a relationship, a relationships is something which goes through time and there is events and many things happens and we know it for a romantic love. It's all over. But this kind of love is not, I mean, it's, yes, I had the feeling that it was, it was very difficult to question this love. And the word, these words, the unconditional love was a way to close the box. So I just wanted to open the box and to see what was in it. Because when you're not afraid to open the box, you can do it. 
And the things that are in the box, I think we all know them. That is, of course, it's love. So it's full of conflict, of feelings, of sometimes uh, rejection. And the part, you know, the part of that story from the child toward the mother is said, is all over psychoanalysis and uh, all over uh, books. But the other part was not explored or less, much less. Which is the mother's relationship to the child. I mean, in the book, it's kind of like everything is going, although the narrator's life has changed so much and she is very caught up in writing and also in, in the pursuit of sleeping with women, things are going fine with her son. She's able to do everything. It seems more like because she's not being a mother in this, you know, traditional way, or it's more about the woundedness of her ex that her son is taken away from her. It's not like she's actually doing anything wrong. Yes, absolutely. What is interesting also is that the simple fact of being accused creates a guilt. But I didn't want to, I mean, in a way, it would have been very easy to show this narrator, this character, as a victim of, you know, homophobia, of jealousy, or... But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a character that would take advantage even of this situation to go further in uh, her freedom and to uh, keep going in contesting all the conventions because she had this feeling of being absolutely clear in her morality. The way the case goes was surprising to me, although maybe it shouldn't be, that basically she's accused of being a pedophile by her ex and, you know, the literature that she has is quoted. Hervé Guibert's book Crazy for Vincent, which is about Guibert sleeping with a very young boy. And just because that's mentioned, it's like she's guilty and her son is taken away from her for six months. And I was curious, just as someone who had served as a lawyer and worked in the criminal justice system, like the narrator, you know, who says that she's avoided divorces. She's represented like murderers and pedophiles and rapists, but she says that divorces were always too nasty for her. If really like family court is like that in France, if the legal system there is really like as slow and broken as it appears in the novel. Yes, and, um, absolutely. But uh, I think it's more or less, more or less the same everywhere in the world. It was no surprise to me that was like that. I mean, justice is the name of a virtue, but it has nothing to do with the judicial system, which is just a matter of order. And it's a violence upon other violences and men judging men. And so it's, yeah, there was no surprise. It's the worst thing that could happen to someone is to uh, be in this system. It's better if it's not criminal, but it's still, you don't go to jail, but it's a disaster. We all know that it's all over. Who believes in justice anymore? I mean, I don't. And then she's put in the really weird position of kind of having to meet with her son. When she finally does get to meet with her son, it's with these moderators and they're observing basically, you know, her maternalness. And so she's performing this role of motherhood just so she can see her son. And it's 
sometimes it's pleasant because it has been a long time since she's seen him, but it's also incredibly forced because they're having to perform for these people. And I thought when she's going for the intake with these administrators who will watch her with her son, you know, they say that she's Paul's mom and she disagrees and she says, no, I'm his mother. And there's a difference for her. And I was curious to you what that difference is. I thought that was a really interesting point. What did you mean by that? Well, first, I really dislike this way, this little tiny way of talking about things of great importance, such as love. Yes, to me, it's something grand and beautiful. And I mean, we are not puppies. So to me, it's something serious and grand. And so love, I'm a mother and I think we're, people are mother and not moms and dads, uh, father and mothers, and it's something else. It has much more gravity, this little thing in which I don't believe, you know, this word of mom and dad. I don't believe in that. I mean, it's not the word I'm interested in. There's, you know, this other thread throughout the book is the narrator's pursuit of women. And she's very promiscuous and she's almost like what would be considered macho in the way that she's afraid of attachment or is veering away from attachment. And I think the book deals so honestly with promiscuity in a way that you don't often read from a female perspective. But the thing is that it's like, it's a counter to being married and monogamy, but it it doesn't even seem like the sexual encounters in the book are all about pleasure because there's a real compulsive element to them. And the narrative even says like, it's not really always about sex or it seems like actually it's not often about sex for her to sleep with all these women and kind of log them. And so I'm curious, like, if it's not about sex. What is it about? Yes. Yeah, well, first, I think it's not really compulsive. It may seem so, but it's uh, it's more like... Uh, a decision. It's in cold blood in a way. I think it's a decision. It's the way she wants to answer her punishment, her condemnation, because she wants to understand why. And in a way, she feels that she is condemned because she wants to be a woman as free as a man, as free as a father who would decided to do whatever he wants. So she assumes this position and she wants to go further in that. And she's, I mean, it's part of the answer. Yeah, in a way, she doesn't want to be a lesbian. Uh, She wants to be a lesbian as macho could be, as a cowboy, you know, there is this expression in the book. Now I'm a lonesome cowboy, but why not? If we are free, if women especially are free to act the way they want. So, okay, let's do it. And let's see if the society is really ready for it. And I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I think homosexuality, especially for women, is okay if it's actually a copy of the mom thing a little bit. Yes, I think it's part of the answer. In that regard, I'm I'm curious how your books and your work have been received in France and if people have commented on this female narrator as macho 
have commented on the promiscuity, like how have people written about it and talked about your books? I don't know. I'm sure it's a uh, fan. There was no real controversial, at least publicly, but I'm sure people and probably even lesbians didn't like the, you know, the way I uh, represent a lesbian in the book. Also, I mean, it's one of the, to me, I was about to say the thrill, but it's more to me an obligation. When you write at the first person, I mean, it should be exactly the same as if you create a character. And to make a character interesting, I think, I mean, this character must not be only uh, nice and sweet and sympathetic. So, And there's a, a thrill when it's yourself that you put in the book to be, you know, sometimes not likable and to provoke things to the readers. Actually, that's why I am writing. I want my sentences to provoke things. I don't want to be liked. I don't want my characters to be uh, liked. I mean, I don't need that. I'm not looking for love <laughs> through my books. I just want my books to make things on people, to make them feel uncomfortable sometimes, to make them think and to make them uh, disagree sometimes and agree sometimes uh, with what is said in the book. I think it's also... Um that if you were writing a novel as opposed to a, a memoir, say, there can be a lot more space for a character not really knowing what they're doing, that their blindness can actually be a productive part of the narration. So in this case, I don't think that this narrator is always aware of what she's doing or why she's doing things. Or I feel like there's a connection between her losing her son and then not really wanting to, you know, settle down with any one woman, almost being phobic of commitment or intimacy. But I don't think she necessarily sees that connection. You're probably true. I mean, yeah, it's uh, also a chaotic moment, which is uh, written about. But it has much to do, I believe, with the fact that she doesn't want to own things or people, and she doesn't want to be owned. So there's also this thing that I, to, you know, to be moving, to have not have a, a permanent apartment, to not having objects or clothes or really f a few. And that's the same with the people. She doesn't, at that moment, she doesn't want to be owned and to own. Because freedom is about that too. You cannot be free if you have, or if you have things and or too much people. We know it. So I had this feeling also that the material world in which we live is full of leashes. And so she has this feeling and she wants to have less leashes as uh, possible. And monogamy, you know, yes, of course, it's associated with property and all these things that she is trying to avoid. And I understand that. But by the end of the book, I feel like she's kind of settled into more of a domestic life, maybe. It's kind of ambiguous by the end, but I, I love the last line, which is kind of something to the effect of like, I realized there weren't that many different possible solutions anyways. Like as far out as she gets, it's almost that she settles into this other life because the other life 
maybe isn't quite as radical as she thought it was going to be, or it wasn't sustainable, or that by the end, we all kind of settle into a middle. I don't know. I thought that was an ambiguous way to end. I was curious yes, about it, that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I wanted to show that she, in a way, that she's not, she's not blocked in her compulsive uh, way of dating girls, neither. She could move from that to that. And yes, at the end, I wanted to show that she does believe in love and that, I mean, in a more classical relationship, that that a more re a classical relationship is maybe a better way to find love. I don't know, but yeah. But it's ambiguous. I don't have the answer. <laughs> None of us do, alas. I don't want to ignore how the book is written because it has this kind of almost like hard-boiled quality. I thought of Camus, of course, but I also thought of like noir fiction. It's very pared down and the plot is very propulsive and it almost reads like a thriller in a way, even though it's not at all and it's a very real, realistic story. So I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about your process of writing and how you get everything so tight and how you stick to a very essential story here. To me, it's the most important. Very quickly, I know the material. I know what I want to use because I'm writing novels, so it's all about events. So I know the events. But I really, I want to, to use very simple words and to be very matter-of-fact and very precise, especially with the hot material, you know, with violence. And I want my sentences and my writing to be as cold as possible because it creates something which I like very much. To me, it's all about that. It's really the way I want to write and probably the reason why I want to, to create this space and this a distortion, actually. I'm curious as someone who's had this conversion experience to writing, how that has evolved for you over time. That, you know, if you had this call, almost like this religious experience to write, and then you do write, and then you continue to write, does it ever get more difficult? Does it feel like maybe more banal after a while? when you've gotten more, you know, success or whatever and appreciation, is it harder for it to feel like quite as life and death? You know, it's like, like anything, when it's new and fresh, it's so exciting, but then you settle into it. And what's it like then? I mean, it's more or less the same because it's, yes, for the pleasure and the difficulty, because at Every moment it's difficult. It's difficult when you, when you begin the book, when you're in, in the middle of it and it's very chaotic. And at the end, at the end, you see the thing and you see, is it really all I could do? Or is it, is it good? And you don't see it anymore. And there is the question, what am I going to write after that? So yes, it's a hard work. But in the same times, you, well, I feel very lucky that it became my job. And now to have readers 
And it's not exactly the same thing as for the first one. For the first one, you know, I really had to find readers and even, I mean, I didn't have a publisher, you know, for months. And so it was really risky. But now uh, I know, uh, I mean, I'm, I have no other job. And so I really have to uh, make good books and to keep going, writing and saying things and catching the readers. I feel at risk at every moment. And sometimes it's very tiring, but in the same time, it's uh, all I want. So I feel very lucky, really. And it's moving because it's, of course, now I do have readers and that's um, incredible. And it's, for me, it's incredible to meet readers in the state now and other writers as well. And to be in this culture, which was, which is so important to me. I mean, my books wouldn't exist without American literature. That's very clear. But at the end of the day, you are with your computer and you just have to put words and to edit your sentences and to think for hours about where you're going to put commas or really if you want to put commas. And to you at that moment, it's a question of life and death. So it doesn't change a lot. I mean, the, it's something very... You're very lonely with this job and it's because I'm a loner that I like it. So the public part doesn't change the way you write, I think. Commas can feel like life or death, it's true. <laughs> Thank you so much, Constance, for speaking with us. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Kate. It was a pleasure, really. That was Constance Debray. Her new novel is called Love Me Tender. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. Thank you.